Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm with Joe and Joe. Hello, dear sisters. Into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. As always, we ask you to please download the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app. You can show mostly political and commentary. Uh, so where you see us on social media, uh, primarily at the Frontline TV, the Frontline TV on YouTube, like, subscribe, share, do all that fun. And today, he's Leonard DiLorenzo, and we're going to be discussing C.S. Lewis. Dr. DiLorenzo has a new book out from Ignatius Press, uh, Chronicles of Transformation, A Spiritual Journey with C.S. Lewis. Now, I can, I can say this, Joe Rissinol, I think you're, you're in the same camp. In my own journey back to the church and practicing the faith, okay, um, I read Mere Christianity. I'm not alone in that, okay? A lot of people did, and that helped me to come back into the church and take my faith seriously. So big fans of C.S. Lewis, so we're happy to have Dr. DiLorenzo on. Now, for those of you who do not uh, Dr. Leonard uh, DiLorenzo, uh, he serves in the Institute for Church and Teaches Theology at the University of Notre Dame. He is the author of several books, including Work of Love, A Theological Reconstruction of the Communion of Saints, and Into the Heart of the Father, Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo. Welcome to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Oh, gentlemen, it's so good to be with you. Thank you for inviting me on. You're welcome, and thank you for coming on. With that, I'm going to hand it to Joe Resinello, and we'll have a great conversation. Doc, we always begin with the prayer. Uh, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O oh most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly into you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, amen. Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Doc, there's a lot of vowels between the three of us just to set the stage, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it should be colorful. Uh, there's no question about it. Um, yeah. I think I, I think a good uh, level set uh, before we get into the book itself. I mean, who is C.S. Lewis and why is he relevant? In case folks don't know, um, Give us a little background. So C.S. Lewis, as many know, uh, was a 20th century scholar and best known for his uh, spiritual writings, really. But his day job was as a medievalist and as a scholar of English literature. He studied and taught both at Oxford University and Cambridge University in the UK. But then many people come across him through the Chronicles of Narnia, which we'll talk about today a bit, or some of his apologetic texts like Mere Christianity that Joe mentioned, or Miracles, or The Problem of Pain, or possibly Screw Tape Letters, or his Space Trilogy. Um, he was born at the very turn of the 20th century and died, I think, in the early 1960s. So a little intro into him. 
Interestingly, because um, we just did an inter- interview talking about us, uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, he never became Catholic. He was close. People say he was on the cusp. <laughs> Give us a little p- bit of that, because I know he was close to it. Yeah, I mean, he re- he was an Anglican, and there was a conversion in his life, but turned towards uh, Christianity that he was definitely distant from. Uh, G.K. Chesterton was somebody that he deeply admired and learned from, especially in his writing. Um, as many would also know, J.R.R. Tolkien was a friend, a collaborator, a correspondent, and in some ways a spiritual mentor to Lewis, though that might at times be overdone. I think Tolkien's influence on Lewis's own spiritual journey and his conversion is quite strong. Though, as you mentioned, Lewis himself was not Catholic. Um, He was Anglican, but it's interesting. He seems to be someone who brings Christians of different communions together. And I think we each try to claim him in our own way. I think Catholics have a kind of uh, a tendency to try to claim him as our own, but he was not a Catholic. And yet there's something of maybe Christian unity that's happening in his writings, a way that he appeals to the imagination and to the integration of what we believe as Christians and how we are to live as Christians. So um, I'm, I'm, I, I like spending time with C.S. Lewis, and maybe that gives us a little bit of a ecumenical uh, color to us as well. Excellent. Dr. Uh, Leonard DiLorenzo is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Uh, Dr. Lewis was an atheist, was he not? He started, he was very much, I guess, a product of his time, early 20th century, um, you know, uh, I guess, you know, post-Nietzsche. So, like, he, he, he was an atheist who had a conversion. Was there, was there a, in, in, in your, um, or could you tell us, was there something that triggered his conversion or was just a process over time? You know, I think something that remained in Lewis, even in his early years when he was very distant from the Christian faith, was this feeling within him of this inconsolable longing, this great desire for being home, a desire for joy, not knowing what that desire was for. It's kind of a, a sort of openness or an emptiness or a thirst that he never quite put his uh, name on. That feeling for joy is actually probably the, the main theme of his spiritual autobiography, uh, Surprised by Joy. But joy there, it never quite has an object, right? It's it's more of his incompleteness. So I think there's definitely um, a potential in Lewis early on, but not a potential that's just going to evolve into a profession of faith. We mentioned Tolkien a little bit before, uh, or I did. Uh, in some of his correspondence with Tolkien, Lewis said, I think, to Tolkien that what he finds in Christianity, Tolkien, who was sort of representing Christianity to him, said what he finds in Christianity is yet another myth and a myth that's not even very good. And Tolkien responded to him that not only is this myth very good, it is the greatest of all myths, and it is the myth that, in fact, is true, that what is uh, spoken of here has, in fact, taken place, that that which is above Lewis, who had a great love myth, and I think learned some of that love from Tolkien, but found in Christianity the myth that was true. And in that way, I think it was a coming together of his literatrice, his intellectual curiosity, and then the center of his life eventually to become a person of faith. 
Thank you for that, Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're discussing his new book, Chronicles of Transformation, A Spiritual Journey with C.S. Lewis. Uh, Doc, that's available at Ignatius Press, correct? That is excellent. And we encourage you all go out and support Catholic authors like Dr. DiLorenzo and our Catholic publishers. Okay, don't buy it from companies if you don't. Okay, uh, Joe Racinello, where do you want to go? Well, Doc, let's talk about the story itself, the Chronicles of Narnia. I think a lot of people know it, um, you know, uh -huh. it's in cartoons, but like they may not like connect the dots. Give us a little background on it, um, and then we could kind of blow it out. Yeah, I can give a little background, and I think it's also interesting maybe in giving the background to talk about how Lewis came to write this, because I think it's part of what we find there. He had an image in his head. He said it all started with images. He had this image in his head of a fawn standing next to a lamppost holding presents. And he wanted to tell a story about that. He wanted to tell a story about that image. And what he created then was a narrative in which a young girl, first of all, a young girl named Lucy, goes through a wardrobe into a different world, a world where it, at that point, is always winter and never Christmas. And she encounters this bond and the story takes place from there. But he wrote this tale, the first one, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, which he says he thought be one, as a story of a daughter whose name indeed was Lucy. But as he says in uh, the, the note at the beginning of that story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he discovered that girls grow faster than stories. And so he didn't finish this story for her while she was young and she had passed adolescence. And as he says, she had gotten to the age where girls no longer take seriously stories like this, fairy stories or, or fairy tale stories. And he says a very interesting thing there. He says, you know, there will come a time perhaps when you can enjoy a story like this again. And isn't that an interesting thing? She grows out of enjoying this story. And then he promises her or hopes that she will come to enjoy it again. And what she would come to enjoy if she did come to enjoy it is a story of these children who pass from England into this land of Narnia. And the land of Narnia is a land that is in need of redemption. And they, as it turns out, in this land of Narnia, are destined kings and queens who must learn to love and fight for this land, for, for the redemption of this world, along with the name find there, this golden lion named Aslan. That's the first story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And from there, through the rest of the, the complete set of the Seven Chronicles, it takes us back to eventually the beginning, the creation of this world, Narnia, all the way to the end of this world, Narnia, its apocalypse, if you will. And it all is about, I would say, the meaning of a world that is intended for children, where children have to love and fight for this world, where they have to sacrifice and grow in maturity and confidence and courage for this world. And I think the final piece of that, that what happens in this world, the world of children, is to come back into our world. It is about what children become, but also what all of us, including adults, become in our own willingness to sacrifice, our own courage to love this world unto its own redemption with our Redeemer. So there's, a, me, there's, there's a snapshot of the Chronicles of Narnia, I suppose. I love, love, love the snapshot. Uh, Dr. Leonard Lorenzo is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Well, along those same lines, okay, um, you wrote this. Narnia is a children's world. You just said that. Uh, but it's not accessible to someone who's too much of an adult. 
Um, <laughs> reminds me reminds me of when Jesus said, unless you become like these little children, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Something along, I'm paraphrasing. I never get yeah. Jesus correct. Uh, or, or, or oh, paraphrasing him. We wish we did it better. I get it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But talk, talk about that. It's not accessible to someone who's too much of an adult. What do you mean by that? I think those who have lost and those of us who have lost childlikeness, that is to say, we become maybe too convinced of our own sophistication. We're too much about trying to get to the point of things. We want to analyze too much. We want to know what the payoff of this thing is. We want to know if it's worth our time. A child, when they confront a story, they just go into the story. So parents who are listening would probably know what I'm talking about. Grandparents or aunts and uncles, anyone who's read a, a story to a child, you read it to the story, the, the child is allows themselves to get wrapped up in the story. Or if you tell it one way once, let's say. And the next time you tell it, the details change a little bit. Whereas the first time you tell it, three men are standing on the right side of the road. And the next time you tell it, two men are standing on the left side, the child will protest. They say, that's not the story. Because they've given themselves over to this new space that they've encountered in the narrative. Now, in order for us to give ourselves over to a story, to allow ourselves to wonder, to enjoy it, we have to become like children again. We have to take the story seriously, something to enter into, and not always try to analyze and make it count for something or try to get to the secret code of something. And that, I think, for us as adults is something that we tend to do quite a lot. Or we have just been, many of us have been dulled. We've been sort of worn down by the trials of life. We're too tired, perhaps, to wonder. But when Jesus says you must become like little children, he means not that you must regress button and go back to infancy. He means allow yourselves to be open learners, humble, willing to wonder, I take it. And this was very much C.S. Lewis' vision, I think, from his Christian heritage, that we must be childlike to enjoy the, like the Chronicles of Narnia. Yo, I'm going to hear quick comment dr De leonard de lorenzo joining us here at the front line with joe and joe and then uh and a brief comment from you is it part do we blame the storytellers in part for that because it seems to me like let's say for argument if you took if you, if you were to look at lord of the rings if you look at chronicles of narnia if you took poetry if you look at the wasteland i find myself entering into that world and be, being able to become mm -hmm. a little bit more childlike whereas yeah. i th where i think with more modern literature i think there always gender or extra grind or a point to make. I don't think you're wrong in that. I like that point quite a lot. And Lewis and Tolkien would agree with you. They, Tolkien, I think, said this first, and Lewis followed him, that a, a story, a children's story that's only of interest or good for children is a very bad story. In other words, like, if it is a good story for children, it will be a good story and therefore will be uh, engaging for adults as well. It doesn't mean everybody will like the same things, but the is true. And I can think, you know, some of the simplest stories that some of us may have read to our kids as they were growing up, things like The Giving Tree, let's say, very short, brief story. But to read that as an adult, maybe reading it to a child after you've left it for a couple decades, it sort of haunts you and consoles you. There's something in that vision that Shel Silverstein had and that he puts over, a very short story that still grips you or the Velveteen Rabbit or um, the Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane, things like this. I think the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lord of the Rings grip you like that.
Excellent. I got Thank this giving that. tree right in my hand. My father read that to me. I still have it. And it oh, does haunt me to this day. I'll be it honest with you when I see yeah. it. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I want to talk about this a little bit more. I think the greatest storyteller was Christ, the parables, mm-hmm. because it allows you to think. He brings things down into a very simple like 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 interpretation but it has a deep meaning i could think of books that have moved me the post office by tagore hemingway's mm. old man in the sea they're mm. simple you know i think we go about like when we're trying to tell somebody or teach somebody something sometimes we bring it at such a level that it the message doesn't like resonate but like even like the giving tree or again tagore's post office they're haunting stories that you can't get out and i think this is what c.s lewis did with this um i could remember cartoons seeing like the wardrobe you know but that's not just what he's talking about to entertain a kid he's trying to teach us something do you think this is i mean you're you're a teacher i mean like like (laughs) is this the way like you know i think the best way to teach I think very much so. It is it is one of, if not the most effective way to teach. And I think part of the act of teaching is not just handing over what the teacher knows. Like you have some expertise and now the point is to just discharge the, you know, what you have from your experience or from your study for the students come what may. No, the act of che- teaching is really an act of translation. It is drawing from what you yourself have become some something of an expert in or more advanced in. But the act of translation is it's meant to be given over to this student or these students or these readers or these listeners in a way that is accessible to them, that leads them from where they are to where you would hope for them to be. And I think, as you're, you're saying, Joe, these stories that are simple but meaty and meaningful and move you in your mind and your affections they they are examples of this great act of teaching where you take your listener so utterly seriously so about jesus and the parables for example i've i've come to really marvel at this it's these first two lines from luke chapter 15 luke chapter 15 is where you get those three marvelous parables of the lost the lost sheep the lost coin and then perhaps the greatest of all the parables the lost sons the prodigal son but the first two lines of that chapter say something like this i'm gonna have to summarize sinners and tax collectors were drawing near to jesus to listen to him pharisees and scribes were murmuring saying he eats with tax collectors and sinners right And to them, he told this parable. What it tells us right in those first two uh, lines, those first two verses, is who the audience was. And they're really broken up into two ways. There's the sinners and tax collectors who are there to listen to Jesus. But then you have the Pharisees and scribes who are doing nothing but complaining and critiquing and judging. But then you see these three parables he tells. In the first one, the lost sheep, There is one who gets lost, gets its pretty little self lost by its own fault, right? And Jesus goes and captures it. Who might know something about that? Well, don't you think sinners know what it's like to get yourself lost by your own volition, your own fault? But the end of that parable is he brings the sheep back and the friends and the neighbors are meant to come together to rejoice because what has been lost has been found. The friends and neighbors are the ones who are always close at hand. Well, who's close at hand? The Pharisees and the scribes, they know the law. They're close to the law. They're never exactly completely wrong, 
they're always a little bit wrong and that little bit is a major problem. And Jesus says, for those who have, who are lost, who have been found, you ought to rejoice, but they won't. So he tells another one, the lost coin, same thing happens. But then in the third parable, notice what happens. They're not just friends and neighbors, but it's the elder son. The elder son is the one who is bitter and resentful, who will not rejoice when the younger one who has gotten himself lost is brought back and celebrated. But notice what Jesus has done. He's taken those Pharisees and scribes and he said, you too are sons. Rejoice. Learn how to rejoice in your father's household. Now, that's a very simple parable, right? But it gets to the it gets to everything. It is the most marvelous act of teaching that we could come across. What's funny is that um, I've always I I, I I we call it the prodigal son too because that's how most people recognize it. But I heard it more appropriately titled the parable of the two sons. Yeah, and that makes I mean, a lot more imagine, sense. Can you imagine the elder son? He's like even the title of this story gets named after my younger brother. The right. Prodigal son, right. It's like part of the problem. <laughs> You know, that's um, so true. That's yeah, my but... family, by the way, the doctor. <laughs> I, and I'm the older brother. I have to always watch myself with that. I swear that is literally. Yeah. Well, so am I. And, you know, to, to just touch on something with C.S. Lewis here in the in the very first chronicle, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, it is a sibling story as well. The younger brother is the traitor. The older brother is not without fault, though. The older brother has lorded his seniority and his privilege over his younger brother in certain ways. So what we find in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I wrote that essay in the, in the volume, what we find in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the thawing, not just of the land of Narnia, but the thawing of hearts and what forgiveness really entails. And it's much deeper than we could immediately imagine. And it has to do everything it has everything to do even with sibling rivalry and the healing of family members. Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. We're discussing C.S. Lewis. So Dr. DiLorenzo's new book out from Ignatius Press is Chronicles of Transformation, a Spiritual Journey with C.S. Lewis. Let's keep talking uh, a little bit because later on I might, we might want to get into a little screw tape letters. I'm a big fan. I remember reading okay. the screw tape letters, uh, letters and saying, <laughs> Oh man, is C.S. Lewis like like spot on? But having said that, uh, the Narnia books, the seven Narnia books, are heavily influenced by the concept of uh, seven heavens. Um, Doctor Di Lorenzo, what is the concept of of the seven heavens, and how did they influence this story? Well, this is actually the sort of discovery and the argument of Father Michael Ward, who happened to contribute to our volume as well. He wrote the essay on the Chronicle of. Prince Caspian. So Michael Ward in his book, Planet Narnia, traces the ways, according to his argument, which I think is a very persuasive argument, that what you find in the Seven Chronicles is actually a presiding medieval planet for each of the chronicles. And for Lewis, who was a medievalist, the cosmology of the Middle Ages has these seven planets and each of, the, each of the planets has a certain character, a certain atmosphere, if you will. And what uh, Father Ward came to discern, it, like in an epiphany moment, and then he did all the research to back this up and present his case, is that those seven chronicles don't tell you about those planets. They actually put you into an environment where those planetary influences, you could say, are actually shaping 
the narrative and the action. So for example, just to give you one example, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, which I mentioned, he says, Jupiter is the presiding planetary uh, image for this story. And Jupiter is the planet of warmth, of uh, really the closest to the sun, you could say. And what you find in the line, the witch in the wardrobe is not just a statement about the thawing of things. You're actually put into an environment where the sudden emergence of spring is the motivating sort of movement of the story itself. And so Father Ward shows us, and I think it's persuasive, like I said, the way in which these stories, the Chronicles of Narnia, are meant to draw us into a certain kind of atmosphere, not to present us with an argument, but to show us what it's like to live a certain kind of influence. For example, in Prince Caspian, in a chivalric tradition, uh, because Mars is the presiding planet, he would argue, of Prince Caspian, the Greek god of war, but also of the woods. And you find both of those coming together in Prince Caspian. So I don't think it's essential that those, well, it's not essential that those who read the Chronicles of Narnia know that. But to know that actually heightens your appreciation for what's going on and maybe allows you to wonder at what's taking place and to enjoy it a little bit deeper, especially as an adult, because it engages your intellect, too. I learned a lot myself from reading Father Ward's book, from having now worked with him a bit in lecture series and in this book. And it's helped me to develop a deeper appreciation for the Chronicles myself. Thank you for that, Dr. Leonard Lorenzo. Uh, we're discussing C.S. Lewis. Joe Rosinello, we have uh, we have time to start a question probably, and then we're going to have to take a break. We'll pick it up on the other side. But where do you want to go? I'm going to talk about like something I discovered in just basically going through some of the information for this interview. Um, I always assumed that this was you know an allegory, but he didn't intend it to be. Um, could okay. you talk about that a little bit? Because I, I think that's interesting. Yeah, I think what, what Lewis would understand as an allegory, and I think most of us probably take this something like this definition too, is a one-to-one -one correspondence. So in other words, like what's happening in this story, this one thing corresponds to one thing in our world. Or to say, if these are supposed to be allegorical Christian stories, which he's not going to say they are, there's, you know, this... Uh, person, this character, this symbol, this image within the Chronicles is meant to represent or stand for this one person image uh, theme in the Christian narrative uh, writ large. What Lewis said about the Chronicles of Narnia, he, he'd like to speak, to speak about them as what he calls supposal literature. And here's what he means by this. He says, suppose there is this land called Narnia and it has such and such characteristics. And suppose this land Narnia with these characteristics is in need of redemption. How do you suppose that might take place? And so what he's done is he's made a statement. There is such a thing as sin and fallenness if there's a need for redemption. So he's certainly seeing this world from that perspective. But he's not then saying this one thing that happens in Narnia represents or stands for this one thing outside. He's bringing us into a narrative where we have to suppose with him that this is a true world that we can trust in and that we should care about. And then we've got to see together what does it mean for this world such as it is to be redeemed. 
Thank you for that. Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. We must take a break because this is radio. Uh, we're having a great conversation. We're talking about Chronicles of Transformation, a spiritual journey with C.S. Lewis. That's the book. Now, uh, Doc, real quick, it, uh, Ignatius, is it IgnatiusPress.com? What's the website for Ignatius? Yeah, yeah I think that's right. It might be Ignatius.com. Well, on the other side of the break, I'll confirm. All right. And I, not that I'm promoting this, but is this available on ignatius.com that's it i found it ignatius.com and not that i'm yeah. promoting people to do this but is it available anywhere else well you know the places where books tend to be available uh <laughs> it's like voldemort enough said that's telling our audience or asking our audience go out and buy the book okay <laughs> um and and and, and uh, ignatius.com is where you want to go and do it um so we have another great segment with c.s lewis we probably should start talking about uh, abolition of man screw tape letters we'll get into it all we'll talk maybe we'll talk about men without chess um i think that's a a, a top a good topic of discussion nowadays you're with the front line with joe and joe joe Pasillo and joe Rissinello, way 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 in the breach on the veritas catholic radio network so stick around we'll be right back where there's catholic radio the folks who listen deepen their faith families are strengthened parishes and communities flourish so let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. We are way in the breach with Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo of Notre Dame. He has written a new book, Chronicles of Transformation, A Spiritual Journey with C.S. Lewis. That is available at Ignatius.com. Ignatius.com. We encourage all our listeners to go out there and purchase the book. Uh, Joe Resinello. Um, Doc, I mean, I, I think we could all agree that our world has gone cold. I mean, it's always was cold, the world. I mean, when, you know, it's a big difference, you know, when you're a young guy and then you get into the world. Um, but recently I was at work and my friend brought his son in who's starting a very competitive high school. And he was, you know, clearly a gifted young man. And he had such a light in his eyes. And after we had our conversation, he introduced me to him. I said to him, I was like, Bill, it's so refreshing to see someone like that because you just don't. And it's nothing is more depressed than to see a young person with that joy that's not in their eyes. Is this something that C.S. Lewis tried to ignite by this book for adults um, as well as children to, to basically for us to reimagine joy, particularly the joy of being a Christian um, in a way that we don't see it? Because um, God knows the world needs joy. Mm. I think he ended up there. And I think that's very much by the end what he hopes that we discover in the Chronicles of Narnia and maybe some of the other things that he has written. I don't think he set out from the beginning with that agenda. Like I said earlier in the in our first part of our conversation, he wrote this story because he had an image in his head and he wanted to tell the story about it. And he wanted to tell a good story. And he wanted to offer to his goddaughter Lucy. But I think what happened in the end is he, because he wanted to give her something that was good and worthwhile and not just didactic, not just going to tell her things, but actually show her and allow her to imagine, because he set about on that trajectory, he created something that can do that for all of us, that is to rekindle wonder. But to your point, like, I think, I think it is right. And I, I you know, I, I write this in the, the preference, the preface to the volume, like this is a world 
that has grown cold without wonder. And many of us know that chilliness. We know what it's like to be dulled down or weighed down, to no longer feel the spark of imagination, to no longer perhaps regularly encounter awe or surprise. And there are myriad reasons ultra-technological culture, the way in which our time has been divvied up towards efficiency, the way in which we have given over our own habits or passions to things that are, in the end, not nourishing for us, that don't connect us to our God, to nature, to ourselves. You know, I had a really remarkable experience this last, just about a month ago. Um, I took a, a group of Notre Dame students, 15 or six, 16 of them, on a backpacking trip to Wyoming. So we were way out there in the backcountry, right? The whole point of it, though, was that uh, there's a group of us here who want to try to find different ways of rekindling wonder in our own young adults that are here, these incredibly talented students, incredibly smart, who often feel tired and anxious and, and worn down. That's what that at least one way of trying to rekindle wonder and think about ways of doing that is to take us out of the regular movement of our modern lives and go back into an immersive environment to be deep within nature, to be on the one hand disconnected and on the other hand, very deeply reconnected. Now, is entering into the Chronicles of Narnia like that? Well, a little bit, I think. I think if you can find this really nourishing literature that you're willing to enter into with your full imagination and intellect with the willingness to be surprised, it is something like being uh, transplanted into a more natural environment like the Wyoming wilderness, if you will. Mm. So I was thinking about that quite a lot, in fact, when I was with these students way out there in the middle of nowhere, uh, trying to find the place to rekindle wonder. I, I, I wanna uh, commend you, I'm sorry, Joe. No, but real quick, uh, uh, Dr. DiLorenzo, I promise we're not going to get you in too much trouble, but let's go further okay. into the breach. That's the problem of education, okay? If you're, if the, if you, if you're an English, if, if you're a literature teacher, okay, an English teacher in high school or a literature professor in college, okay, and every book you decide that you want your, your, your students to read has to have an agenda, a point of view, um, some sort of, you mentioned being didactic, telling people what to think, and that's how you judge the literature, rather than providing, I mean, I, when I went to Seton Hall Prep, okay, in New Jersey, all right, I remember, I remember, I said, that's the way education should be, maybe I didn't appreciate it at the time, but a <laughs> freshman reading Merchant of Venice, okay, and as a sophomore reading Julius Caesar, and all these, all these, all these wonderful works of literature, where are we go into these worlds that you're describing, yeah. where the author, where the author creates the world, and we can enter into it without judgment, without an axe to grind, without a political agenda. Quite frankly, the education system sucks, and that's and or for the most part, okay, and that's because. Yeah. We, we don't teach kids, we, 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 because, and again, I don't care what anybody says out there, we know it to be true, because many, many, many teachers, particularly in the public schools, want to teach kids what to think, rather mm. than opening up this joy of entering into this imaginary world that you're describing, which I'd mm. much rather do if I'm picking up a work of fiction. Your comment on that? You know, it's very much related to even how I try to teach uh, scripture here at Notre Dame to our first year students, let's say, in our introduction to uh, theology course, that 
the way in which we approach scripture or that we think about any text is there's something here, you know, there's some certain points that we're supposed to get and we're supposed to kind of like try this text to see if it meets our criteria and this, that, and the other thing. But what we're really doing in that course or what I try to do is actually a re-education in what it means to read, to first seek to understand what's there what we're encountering, the literal sense of the text. That is to say, on the level of what's written, which sometimes requires you know, some deeper study. What does this mean and what's its context and where does it go? But that's also, if you think about it, I mean, it's most important for scripture, but it's also kind of teaching us how to be human beings with one another again. Like we listen to each other this way. We listen to each other with agendas and we already too quickly interpret what the other person is saying, whether it's our family member, our neighbor, our political uh, rival. Mm -hmm. We already know everything, right? We've already interpreted, we're already waiting to speak back. And instead of that, we ought to begin by seeking to understand what's being said written, given to us on its own terms, not to, that doesn't mean I'm going to accept it, agree with it, but I'm first going to seek to understand. And that, in fact, is the whole project of theology itself. It's faith seeking understanding, but that's a real task to seek to understand. So I'm right with you. Like, I think a lot of our educational system is not about that. It's about expediency and achievement and I'm a product of that kind of education, in fact. I went to a, a very excellent high school, which taught us great things, but also taught me how to lust after achievement and acclaim, how to get to the next thing, the next goal, the next goal, the next goal. And I think a lot of my adult life has been trying to unlearn that pattern that was instilled in me beginning in high school and earlier, and certainly reinforced through college and thereafter. So the educational paradigms that we put in place uh, are crucial for the kind of human beings that we're hoping to form, like what our children become as adults. Um, and to your point, or, you know, speaking about the kind of education you have, like my wife and I have tried to find, you know, as best we can, that type of education for our children. We tend more towards the classical education models. Um, and usually that's over and against the more rigorous college prep model. Classical education definitely it's just benchmark to the sort of standards of achievement that have been placed out there by whoever's holding the reins absolutely Joe i want to hand it over to you i'm going to make a 20 second comment my wife works in a charter i moved to arizona my wife works in a charter school here in arizona and mm -hmm. my my foster son goes to the same school he's in the uh, seventh grade and the, I'm, it's not a Catholic school. Um, I looked into the Catholic schools and this charter school does exactly what you just said, Dr. DiLorenzo. In other words, it's classical education. And what I love most about it is that the headmaster at parent, parent orientation night, he said, yep. we're not, we're not, we, we emphasize being successful. He goes, however, uh, success without being a virtuous human being, a good human mm -hmm. being uh, means nothing. So we're, we're here to develop uh, and create or, or help to create good human beings. To me, what you just said, let, let's keep it moving, Joe Russin. I, I just wanted to basically say, good for you to go on such a trip because people don't do that. You know, I'm serious. Good for no, I you. Agree. Because you got to get, so uh, like, it, people, I, you know, like, you're a little younger than we are, um, but we get into our groove. And, and we don't want to step out of it. And to follow Christ is to step out. 
and constantly step out. Life is an adventure and good for you. I want to say that honestly, because not enough people do that. And we have to do that. We have to be open. God sometimes calls us to do things <laughs> and, and we got to do it. The real hero of this story is my wife who let me do that. And took, <laughs> I love it. You know, took charge of the six children while I was gone. At a Fair crazy enough. Time at that is true. Summer. I'm with you, brother. Yeah. I got five. I get it. <laughs> so Dr. Lewis, Frontline with Joe and Joe, we're discussing C.S. Lewis. We're discussing his new Chronicles of Transformation, a spiritual journey with C.S. That's available at Ignatius.com. Joe Resinello. Uh, let's talk about the character of Aslan. Um, a lot of people think that he uh, he represents Christ. Is that is that the case? So yes and no. So here's here's the way Lewis tells of the sort of if you will uh, authorial creation of Aslan. Like I was saying before, he started to tell this tale, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which started with this fawn standing by a lamppost holding presents. That's the story he wanted. You know, that's the image that generated the story. But as he says, as he was telling this story, all of a sudden, this lion came bounding into the scene. In other words, like in his own imagination, there was this lion. And as he says, before long, almost immediately, the whole narrative started to bend towards this lion. And the lion became the major figure of the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, is the lion, is Aslan Christ? Well, there are certainly strong reasons for saying yes. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he is the one who, who rises from the dead. At the end of the voyage, the lamb be sure who feeds breakfast to the voyagers, right? Kind of alluding to or telling us back to John. He is the one who is uh, sent from, as it's told in the Chronicles, the emperor across the sea. In other words, the one who is who is inaccessible or unseen, but who reaches to us in this lion, like the son from the father. He's the one in the end into whose country all of those who are redeemed in him go. Lewis, in one of his letters to children, so this is a reminder Lewis. He received letters to respond to every letter he received, and a lot of these letters were from children because they read the chronicles. He left a child from the mother of a child, and the mother said her son felt very gay because he had come, he thought, to love Aslan more than he loves Jesus. And Lewis wrote back to her to tell your son, basically, don't worry about it, because anything that you love in Aslan is actually something lovable in Jesus. Perhaps you just haven't seen it there in him yet. So what Lewis is saying is this character is in his imagination, drawn from his understanding, his deep, rich, biblical and literary understanding of who Jesus Christ is and how a redeemer in this world of Narnia would come to this people. Um, let me let me ask you this, um, Dr. DiLorenzo. Uh, let, let's we, we were we were on education. Let's let's keep that moving a little bit. In okay. the abolition of man, uh, mm -hmm. Lewis notes that the task of the educator is to irrigate the deserts of students' hearts. I, I never quite thought of my heart as being <laughs> a desert when I was in high school, but it seems kind of appropriate. What does he mean by that? I'm going to take a stab at it. I can't remember exactly what he's talking about where he says that, but I do remember that. 
in all throughout the abolition of man, he's making a claim. This is sort of his treatise on ed education. And in fact, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the silver chair is more or less the narrative version of the abolition of man. And Rebecca Lamb, who wrote the essay in our, or in our volume about that, shows us how that is the case. But Lewis's understanding of education is that education must have discipline. There are certain things you have to learn. You have to learn grammar. You have to learn the great traditions. You have to be schooled in literature. It's not just about meeting the tastes and affections of young people such as they are. What he's saying is that you have to be led so that your tastes and affections mature. So you learn how to discriminate in a good way between what is real good solid food and what only passes for a time as sustenance, right? And if we left it to children or we left it even to any of us to just settle for what appeals to us at a given time, we would gorge ourselves on that which is tastiest, but not the most nourishing. And as we know, when you develop a, a more refined talent, you eventually sort of lose the appetite for the less nourishing things, and you start to develop an appetite for the more nourishing things. I think what he's talking about there in the irrigation of the heart is that the heart has to be, through the intellect and through the affections, sort of tutored and led into what is truly life-giving, what is truly uh, sustaining and substantive and nourishing. And that requires quite a lot of discipline for children, for students who are learning. There's certain things you have to learn in a way of learning, but the whole point of it is so that you can learn what true joy is. So you can delight in the deepest way and not in the superficial and shallow ways that left to ourselves, we would probably invariably settle for. Mm -hmm. Going back to those parables that you're talking about of Jesus, the parables always strike us if we pay attention to uh, them as not controlling. They also rip our hearts out if you think about it. Like we're being indicted for not wanting or desiring enough of thinking of things in the wrong way, of letting our affections go in the wrong directions. And Jesus, through what seems like these simple stories, is ripping that right out so that we can discover the true joy that's in him. I think he's irrigating our hearts, first of all. And Lewis is saying education truly done well is the participation in that. Well, thank you for the explanation, Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo. Joe um, Doc, Doc, at the end of the story, soldiers overrun Narnia and its citizens turn on each other. Sounds familiar. Uh, because of <laughs> lies about Aslan, uh, no one's willing to trust anyone or even look for the truth, which is right in front of them. Clearly, I could relate to this. I see this. You could relate to it in the gospel. I think about this when I pray the rosary, when I read scripture. Um, how Christ was right in front of people, even his disciples, and they didn't see it. They didn't see it. Even when he broke the bread at the Last Supper, they didn't understand it. Talk about this, because I think there's lessons for America here in this last battle that we could uh, learn from. What are they? Well, the tragedy of the last battle, this last of the seven Chronicles of Narnia, begins with the uh, corruption of language, the misuse of language. It begins with the misuse of language from the sort of uh, enemies or bad guys in the story. I can't think of a better word than that. Which are, no, bad guys is good. Bad, bad guys, guys bad, guy, okay. bad guys. <laughs> it's mostly a mischievous and a clever ape who starts to 
reinterpret the meaning of things by having little slights of language and slights of phrases. And he convinces a donkey to present himself as Aslan because they find a lion skin. And then he creates a whole sort of, um, I don't know, myth around this, a kind of political and militaristic movement toward his own ends. But what he's doing the whole time, this ape uh, who is deceiving, is he's using language and things that seem true and just changing their meaning ever so slightly so that they're directed towards a different end. And I think for us, Americans in the 21st century, uh, people really across the world in the 24th, 21st century, it is a it's a signal to us of how important our language is. What we say and how we say it, that we seek after what is correct and offer it in truth. That we not only say what is factually correct, but we also seek to offer what we give to each other with kindness and charity uh, and with, res with respect, really taking into account who the other person is and what they need. Because the easiest thing and the most tempting thing is to use our words to deceive other people just a little bit to get our own advantage, to seek our own gain, our own ends. And we do this, we could say, okay, you're doing it in the halls of Congress. You know what? We do it in our houses, our households too. We use language, we hide little things or we just present this little part of the thing because we want our to kind of go along in this way or we want our children to do this or in, in the workplace, we want to kind of create a different sort of than what is really, really the case. That's very much what's happening in the last battle. It all starts with the corruption of language and it happens so subtly. And it's the subtleness that's the problem. That, in fact, is the root of the fall in Genesis 3. It's the subtlety or the shrewdness of the serpent who takes language and just turns it ever so slightly begins the whole tragedy. So I think one of the lessons there, if you will, is about the importance of language and using language well. And I think we have to safeguard that because obviously language is under attack. And we know this. We know this going back to, I mean, uh, how many writers in the last hundred years have, have, have written about this? Orwell probably being the most popular uh, in Actually, 1984, yep. the destruction of language. We have to safeguard yep. our, our language. Now, let me ask you this. But one part of what you said, Dr. DiLorenzo, joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe, um, doesn't what you say require human beings to acknowledge such a thing as objective good? Because it seems that's another problem that we have is that, well, uh, Pope Benedict XVI pointed out the, the dictatorship of relativism. Everything's mm -hmm. relative, including good and evil. So isn't what you just said, doesn't it require on the part of people to, if they're going to pursue the good, you have to first acknowledge that there is an objective good to pursue. Am I wrong, Dr. DiLorenzo? We just, maybe as a baseline, we agree to this, everybody, that it is better to try to speak in ways that are factually correct than to knowingly speak in ways that are factually incorrect. Can we say that as an object? Can we take that as an objective standard, right? I don't so want to cut you off, but I want to say yeah. nowadays it doesn't seem like that cuts the mustard. You no, can't it doesn't. And I'm thinking, what, what if we just went to that? Like, is anybody, anybody going to confess? Is anybody going to like put themselves out there and say, you know what? I actually think it's better to say things that are factually incorrect. 
So that's the beginning of objective truth. I think if we can just clarify, there is something that's good and something that's wrong on that level, because that's already the participation in, or a, a sort of a, a sort of tacit agreement right from the beginning of truth with a capital T, that there is something like a moral order, that there is, we already have a sense of right and wrong. And maybe at just that basic, most basic level, if we can start from there. Now, to your point, I know people might say, well, well, what do you mean by factually correct? And, what, and you're like, my goodness, like, come on. Like, of course that, you can. That's when you just like got to slap your head and go, come yeah, on, yeah, dude, yeah, I got to yeah, tell yeah. you about those. Why do I have to describe a, what a fact is to you? <laughs> uh, I mean, but this is, I mean, you got to say this is one of the reasons we do this show, Dr. DiLorenzo, is because it's very frustrating that people will not even get to the point that you just described, which is, can't we just, can't we just agree on the facts and then move forward from there? Because now even facts are in dispute. And, and, and oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's angering and it's frustrating because there's no way to pursue truth in that environment. Well, and I also think like this is a broader thing, but I think we're exposed to far too much. Look, we're, we just see and we hear far too much. And our digital technologies have have made this possible for us, right? We have access to everything all the time. There are voices and images and sites everywhere. Maybe part of this responsibility towards recovering something like a regard for truth is this, this sounds strange, allowing our worlds to become a little bit smaller, like a little bit more attention to the things that are close to us, to the people that are around us, and less attention to those things that are very far away or just passing by in a soundbite or in an image. And I recognize the complete irony of saying this on radio. I host a podcast. Like, are, am, I, am I not just contributing to the noise? Well, it can be more of the noise, but maybe part of the call is pay more attention to the things that are close at hand. Do not become too, well, now I'm preaching. Do not become too dissatisfied with those who are around you and the places and communities that we're given to and we find ourselves in. That's where I think the rebuilding of the regard for truth and the rebuilding of our communities actually begins. Joe Resinello, we have about another three minutes left if you have a final question for Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo. I want to talk about human perception because I think this this book could could help with that. I mean, when perception is darkened, basically our whole life becomes darkened. I always say this on the show, Doctor. Uh, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see the face of God. I mean, Scripture tells us this. I always think of the crowning of thorns when I pray the rosary. How did the crowd turn on him? But they did. Their perception was darkened. Does this book, Chronicles of Narnia, have, you know, give some people some insight into that trap set by the devil? Because it's a trap. Dr. DiLorenzo, we have about two minutes left. Okay, so I'll take that in a minute and 45 seconds. Here we <laughs> nice. Go. You, you know, Jesus, a big question. In, in the, I'll take it this way. In the Gospel of John, the very first words that the Word made flesh himself speaks. So in other words, Jesus's first words are these what are you looking for? It's a question. And I think to your point, Joe, it's a question of perception. What do you want to see? What are you willing to see? And that question of what are you looking for runs like a, a thin, faint red thread all through that gospel. Because when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, he asks them, whom do you seek? And when he encounters Mary Magdalene outside the tomb, he asks her the same question, whom do you seek? In other words, what are you willing to see? 
or have you come here with an agenda? Have you come here only looking for a certain thing? Those two disciples on the way to Emmaus, they say we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. He is the one to redeem Israel. What were you looking for? So do the Chronicles of Narnia call into or bring to the fore our own perception, what we're looking for? I think that's one of the massive gifts of the Chronicles of Narnia is if we allow ourselves to be drawn in, it's not only here, but maybe in a special way here, we can have our own prejudices, biases, our own smallish expectations put on trial, and maybe we can remove ourselves from them for a little while to learn to desire something more than what we desired before. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Leonard DiLorenzo. Uh, Doc, the name of the book, the title of the book, and where people could buy it real quick, and anything else, uh, any place, maybe on social media or anything else uh, where people could learn more about what you're doing. You got it. So it's The Chronicles of Transformation, A Spiritual Journey with C.S. Lewis, published in a beautiful way by Ignatius Press. They're at Ignatius.com. My institute here at the University of Notre Dame, the McGrath Institute for Church Life. You can find us at mcgrath.nd.edu. I've got my own website if you'd like to visit me there, leonardjdlorenzo.com. And I put out a weekly newsletter that I'd love to have you join if you'd like to. It's Life, Sweetness, Hope. If you probably Google my name and that, you'll find it. You know, you mentioned earlier about joy. One of the joys of doing this show is having a fantastic conversation with a guest like you, Dr. DiLorenzo. We're not just saying this. There's a lot of fun, very educational. Joe and I always say we learn as much as, as we want our audience to learn. So you've been great, and you're welcome back on this show anytime. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, I loved it. Thank you so much. It's like a little bit of a homecoming, like my people. I'm a Jersey boy by birth. And like you said, there are a lot of vowels in my name, too. So it's good. Love to it. <laughs> Gotta love yeah. it. And thank you all out there for joining us at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Two things, download the app, share it with your friends. You'll have access to all of our station's content. And please follow Joe and I on social media wherever you find us, primarily the Frontline TV, the Frontline TV on YouTube. Like, subscribe, share. Do all that fun stuff. And remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation. And that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.